Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Rebecca Mackay is a Chicago-based writer whose recently released second novel, The Hundred Year House, was called by the Los Angeles Times, a juicy and moving story of art and love and the luck it takes for either to last. During her Flyby Writers Project weekend at Lighthouse, Rebecca read excerpts from The Hundred Year House to a rapt crowd in the intimate setting of Lighthouse's first floor parlor. So I'm going to tell you, um, because we have the vintagey thing going on here tonight and, you know, the house and the food and the, you know, I'm all flappered out. Um, I'm going to have fun reading, not from the section I normally read from in here, but from the 1929 section, which I've only read from like once before. So the way the book is set up, um, it is the story of one house and one family told backwards through time, through the 20th century. Um, but we only have three main three main time periods and then one little one. Um, the book starts in 1999, and a lot of the book happens there. A lot of questions are raised about the history of this house, which from the... Um, you know, teens through the um, 50s was an artist's colony, the kind of place where artists, writers, musicians, dancers could go. Um, these places are still around. Um, you got a couple up in Wyoming, maybe some here in Colorado, too. Um, the kind of place where you could go and work on your art for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and um, also find some great community there. So a lot of questions were raised in 1999 about that history. And in the 50s, we go back to a time right after the colony had ended. There's some really dark stuff going on then. Um, And then finally, we go back to 1929. And um, the only things you really need to know here, I'm going to read, depending on how the I'm going to kind of time myself. I'm only going to read for like 10 minutes. I'm either going to read three or four very, very short sections here. Um, And the only things you need to know are that the artist colony is called Laurel Field. Um, All these people, there are a ton of people here. You don't need to keep track of any of them, I promise you, Um, especially for this. If you'd been reading the book, you would know in advance who a lot of them were going to be, so you'd recognize them. Um, The one person who's been the object of a lot of speculation, though, is the poet Edwin Parfit, who also goes by Eddie. And he's the guy we've been waiting to meet. He um, had a very mysterious life, and it's his time at Laurelfield that everyone's interested in. Um, And... Um, the other thing that you need to know is that, um, there's a country club in this town, um, that people belong to in later years and in tremendous, in what people in 1999 recognize as tremendously culturally insensitive fashion, um, their lawn is decorated with these three teepees that people have parties in, even though, um, like the Native Americans who lived there didn't even use teepees. You know, just complete um, idiocy, but um, they're being even more idiotic right here, actually. So um, I'm going to start with kind of the longest, then I'll read some really, really short sections. And this is the first thing we see in 1929. And this chapter has a title, which is In the Field, the Tribe. Zillow was a moving statue in the torchlight. If Eddie could, he would love her. Her hair a black puddle, her teeth a broken necklace, her white throat thrust forward when she laughed. Victor, though, Victor Osen did love her, or else what was this filament between them across the night? They were only eight. Samantha had stayed back. 
Marlon Moore led them all to the teepees, which were just as he'd described, cloth cones in the field, big enough for all to squeeze inside just one. They passed the flask again, vital to maintain the drunken state in which the plan was hatched, lest they sober up and discover themselves ridiculous. It was only a few drinks into the evening that Marlon had volunteered his story, dragged by a colleague's wife to last year's Chippeway Ball. This is the Chippeway Club, sorry. And several drinks later that the joke had started, a true Chippeway Ball should feature more scalping and war whoops and nudity. The sun had set. Additional bottles brought out to the terrace when it became a plan. When Victor and Marlon and Eddie drove to the college where Marlon taught and broke into the theater's costume shop and returned with headdresses and face paint. Across the lawn, windows full of elegant locals, long tables, candles. The eight undressed in the open teepee by torchlight, laughing and shushing, leaving clothes in distinct piles to speed escape. Zilla muscled flat as a board, Victor with his impossible limbs, his dancer's limbs, staring at her like a drugged man. Ludo, pale for an Italian, a thatch of dark fur on his chest. Fanny and Josephine, one doughy, one thin as rope. Armand Cox, preposterous name, his whole being covered in golden hairs. Marlin with his little pot belly, stretching his legs to run. Two weeks ago, Eddie hadn't been able to keep them straight, and now he imagined he'd know their voices to his dying day. Another adjustment. All day long, in front of his pen or typewriter, he was as alone as he'd ever been. But at night, he was a we. Something he hadn't felt since childhood, since he'd climbed in bed with his sister, since, he'd let her, she, since she'd let him wear her shoes. He was part of a first-person plural. Some wore the headdresses, and the others stuck loose feathers in their hair. Their faces red and black stripes, yellow down the nose. Armand and Ludo, leading the parade, grabbed each grabbed one lawn torch to hold aloft. Zilla started the war cry, hand pulsing on her open mouth, and the others joined and rode the wave of noise into the club porch and through the open glass doors to the dining room. The first thing Eddie saw, he told the others later, was the fat woman in the green dress, the way her fork flew from her hand, lettuce still speared in the tines. The tribe whooped and screeched and circled the sea of tables three times. A great deal of anatomical flapping, some high, some low, all uncomfortable, all ridiculous in the electric lights. But wasn't this the point? As the rest of them flailed and beat their chests, Victor did actual pirouettes. He leapt over the carving table, his legs straight as wings. The evening gowned ladies dove into their husbands' laps. Half the men laughed and clapped, and the others stood to do something, but then weren't sure what to do. Someone screamed, stop them! Ludo shouted, we come for squaws! <laughs> Two white-haired men tried to block the path, but moved away quickly when Armand and Ludo didn't stop. As Armand even turned and shimmied backward toward them, posterior muscles twitching. The youths, boys and girls both, watched with poorly contained glee. Victor planted a kiss on a squealing girl's forehead and left a perfect black lip mark. On the final circuit, Eddie grabbed a dinner roll and stuffed it in his mouth. Back into the night, some of the tuxedoed men giving chase, but only halfway across the lawn, then posting themselves cross-armed between teepees and buildings, shouting, guarding against further invasion. A loud voice thinned by distance. This is a private establishment! Zilla wheezing with laughter, Armand torch-abandoned turning a cartwheel. The artists carried clothes and armloads and ran, some back to the waiting auto, some with Eddie into the woods where they dressed and then found the path to the road and then walked the road back to Laurel Field. Um, 
So skipping, I'll read a little more, a little more, some very short sections. Um, skipping ahead, um, the only the only other things you need to know going forward are that um, Gamby DeVore is actually the owner of this house. It's being used by the artist colony, but the house has this wealthy man who's an owner. Western Union, August 29, 29. Samantha Mays, Carol Laurelfield, Arts Colony. Heard of disturbance? Stop. In New York City on business? Stop. Arrive Laurel Field tomorrow afternoon. Stop. Do make preparations. GW DeVore. So they get in trouble, in other words. Um, and skipping ahead again, this section is Ludo and Josephine on the lawn. They look at the roof, the way the sun just now at 11 shoots a tentative ray over the top, the last rain turning to mist. Ludo says... Oh, there's supposed to be a ghost in the house. Ludo says, no, I don't believe. Back in Napoli, one time I go to a seance. It's all tricks, all click-click and knocking sound, and guess what someone wants to hear? He laughs. It's same with my music. No, knock-knock, tell you what you want to hear. I used to write symphonies. Now I make rhymings and bouncings. <laughs> no ghost appeared at the seance? The ghost is in our ears. Marlon swears he heard something in the night. I tell you what I learn. At a colony, always there come noises in the night. Howling, thumping, door slam, moaning, bang, bang, bang. You know, you know what is? Is not ghosts. <laughs> what is people making sex? <laughs> um, and I will read, if I can find it, I will read one last. Is, <laughs> is people making sex? <laughs> All right. Um, and um, finally... This is called What We've Gleaned from Marlon. Marlon Moore claims to know a woman who knows the divorce. It's impossible Samantha exists because one does not know the divorce. You might know one divorce or another divorce, but they aren't an entity. It's like saying you know all the feral cats in the woods. You've probably just seen the same one five times. Marlon counters that his friend knows the important divorce, the ones who've stayed sane, the ones with the houses. Marlon has heard testimony from some of the greatest living writers that the best way to induce strange and inspiring dreams is to eat very strong cheese before bed. He himself keeps a crock of Roquefort on the windowsill in his room. He doesn't see the problem. It has a lid. Yes, Josephine mutters, but your mouth does not. <laughs> Marlon knows with great certainty that back home, Ludo, our own Italian fixture, became unnecessarily political for a composer. It seems Ludo was a great friend of the communist leader Bordiga and wrote a song lampooning Bordiga's rival, Gramsci, and worse, Mussolini himself. Marlon believes he rhymed Benito with Finito. Let's ask if it's true, says Armand. I wouldn't, says Victor. And so Marlon fingers his mustache, adopts a tone of epic narration. By 1926, both Bordiga and Gramsci were in jail, and Ludo was on a boat to New York under an assumed name, quotas and papers be damned. How he landed at Laurel Field, where he stayed the past three years, is no great mystery. Bordiga probably phoned Samantha himself. Is Ludo sleeping with Samantha? Oh, everyone assumes so, certainly. But that's beside the point. And now Ludo has a bit of a career stateside as well, writing show tunes. Our gain, Fanny adds emphatically. Fanny is our greatest optimist. Marlin can tell astrological signs with great accuracy. He pegs Zilla as an Aquarius, and she nods. We are duly impressed. Late one night, Marlin starts giggling about Victor Osen and his ballerinas. They're all French, he says, or Russian. 19 years old, 80 pounds each. Let me tell you, a line of 12 swans, he's been under every tutu. His giggling turns shrill. Not a single bosom between them, but can you imagine the ways they stretch? Zilla leaves the room. 
Marlon wears a silk burgundy smoking jacket over his clothes. He is poised for great things. Marlon has heard a rumor. Mr. DeVore is already on his way. And that is where I will stop. Thank you. <laughs> are we doing like a Q&A or are we just going to chat? But it's, it, that is your decision. Or we could just all have more drinks and chat. <laughs> either way, either way is good. Yeah, you have it. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there are basically, I st- when I started writing this, I had this idea that this house was going to have been an artist colony, um, but I had never stayed at one. And I grew up near one, so I was always kind of fascinated by it. Driving past, that's the Ragdale Colony, which, um, yeah. So. Um, But I didn't, I I basically realized I was going to have to stay at one if I was going to write about it. And also I had kids, so it was a good time. Um, I actually stayed first at Yaddo in upstate New York, and then I stayed at Ragdale um, near Chicago. And, um, you know, I went in with my ideas. I went in with my characters, um, but... Um, I also went in with an open mind. I hadn't written the 1929 section yet. So um, a lot did seep in there in terms of the history, particularly of Yaddo, which um, does go back to the 20s. And um, and uh, some of the things that happened at Laurel Field are very similar to what happened there, like rumors of communism and all those things. Um, and f- the physical layout is maybe more similar to Ragdale. And then there are certain people I met. Um, I didn't base any characters off anyone, but there were, um, for anyone who's read the book, um, you'll understand what this meant to me. I met an artist at Yaddo whose art was to um, smash tea sets and record it in slow motion and then make like symphonies out of it. And I'd already been writing about mosaics and that was just something that seemed amazing to me. And so I, I did put an artist in mentioned in passing who was breaking China, um, um, shards of which are then found later slash earlier in the book. Um, so, um, there were things like that that came in through that, but those, those are the two. And this, so the book is dedicated to Yaddo and Ragdale, um, which are the two. And now I've stated another one too, but those are the two of them. Yeah. Um, this one, you know, I, I started it before I finished The Borrower, actually. I'd sort of broken up with The Borrower for a while. And then um, that was the point where I, I was telling some people earlier, I suddenly realized this needed to go back in time. It wasn't originally going to. So I stopped. I finished The Borrower as I outlined this book in, in detail and then went back to it once The Borrower was done. Um but all told, it was probably about three years, but it actually had started out as a short story like 10 years before that, that was a complete failure. So, um, but then I, I hadn't worked on it, but it, this, you know, it kind of, it really snapped right along. I was working really intensely on this one, which I think I had to, to keep all those mental balls in the air. So, um, so not why, too long. Uh, uh, that's, that's a really good question. I can tell you, um. I wanted the 20s, um, and I wanted it before the crash. I mean, this is the summer of 1929. Um, I can't tell you particularly why I chose 29 as opposed to another year in the 20s, but once I chose it, um, the research I did into 1929 very much influenced then what I wrote. So. I mean, the the 20s, yeah. I'm I'm fascinated by what was happening artistically in the 20s, and... um, the, um, I, I love the twenties, but uh, you know, the more I read about it, it's, it's, it's 
shocking, actually. They're, they did things, they were doing things in the 20s that would curl our hair today. Um, like, we think we're really, like, you know, like, inventing everything. That it, oh, my God. Um, and and half of which I couldn't even put in the book because it would seem like it was just in there to shock. Um, but um, they, uh, you know, 29 became significant as I researched it. I was realizing it was really the point where the... Um, the movies became talkies, for instance. And I have a character staying at the colony who was a silent film star who's trying to write screenplays and is kind of doomed. And um, so, you know, some big changes, you know, and I think it's sort of um, all that excess of the 20s had come to a head, uh, you know, so right around then. then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. By 1929, actually, a lot of the American artists were living in Paris. Um but of course, there were still plenty here too. So there were still plenty to write about. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Yeah. And it's you know I'm not gonna you know throw in like I'm not going to have someone like make a huge investment right they, you know but um but the other thing I had a lot of fun with is the first section being in 1999 um there's one character who's really over preparing for Y2K and um it was something I'd always wanted to write about and um he's you know he's a kind of a minor character but that build up to Y2K is a big part of the 1999 section and um of course in that case we see it borne out that you know we go into 2000 and they're, you know, they're up watching TV and it's midnight and nothing happens. Um, um, well, globally, nothing happens. Things happen and crazy things happen in the book that night. But um, yeah, that that sort of um, yeah, there's there's sort of that there's a historical kind of dramatic irony, basically, and it, you know, historical his, histor historio ironic or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there, there are, it, I had a lot of work to do with trying to signal to readers who to pay attention to and who not to pay attention to. Um, and there's one thing I did in here. This is why I don't recommend reading it on a Kindle. Actually, you really have to be able to flip around. But there's a list, and this is a, a document that would totally exist, is a list of the artists in residence that then I'm kind of like saying their names and what room they're in and what they're doing. And it's really there for readers to flip back to. Because I know, you know, I had to have this many characters, but we're like, the book's almost done when I'm introducing them all and you need some help, right? Um, and um, But to, to manage them in a crowd scene, not all the scenes are like the one I just read. Very few scenes have all of them together again in it. That was sort of a way to introduce them all at once. Um, and, and to signal to the reader, like, yeah, it's going to be crazy. You got, you're going to have to pay attention. Um, but most of the scenes are more, you know, two people talking. And hopefully the clues are there for the reader. Um, you've been prepped way far ahead of time for certain names to pop out at you that when we meet Marlon Moore, we know who that is. And when we meet Eddie Parfit, we know who that is. Um, and others are new, but they're the less important ones too. It was interesting that even though I didn't know anything about them, I could kind of keep them separate in my mind. So took a lot of That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe, yeah. One or two more. Yeah. Did you write the book in the sections in the way that it appears in the book? 
Yes, I wrote it in the order it appears, which which is to say in reverse. Um, And the one thing I didn't say is it ends in 1900. There's a really brief prologue at the end in 1900. Um, And I did. And it was a very intentional decision. I, I had to map it all out. I had to plot it kind of forward in or all over the place. Um, but I wanted to write it in the order it would be read because I, it, that was, that was so important for pacing to me and, and everything else. Um, so that I could feel it that way. Um, the one exception I made to the rule was I wrote 1999 and I was finishing it up my first time at Yaddo at the Sardis colony and I had everything else mapped out. Um, and the logical thing then would have been to start 1955 but I had like four days left at Yaddo and I felt like I want to start the 1929 section here. So it's born at Yaddo. Um, so I did. And then I left it there. And when I went home, I worked on 1955 then. Um, and until I ca- got caught up and then I kind of resumed. So, so just almost tagging on a couple times today, you said, and then I realized I had to tell it backwards. So I want to just hear a little bit. Like, why? Yeah. What was happening right before that? Yeah. Okay. So basically, it's a really good question. Um, And maybe this this is a good question to end on, in fact, and then we can all all grab a drink. Um, So I'm sorry. I'm I'm making it sound like I really need a drink. I'm just trying to talk about what's happening next. I really did. I'm not even going to drink anymore. Um, For the record. Um, But... um, so what happened was, you know, I, I had, it was basically the story that was all set in 1999 and there was a lot of stuff raised about the history of the house. There was there were all these questions about this mystery and near the end, someone it's in there still, someone tells Doug kind of one of our main characters, this long, crazy story about something that happened there in the past and originally kind of told more of it. Um, because I couldn't put it anywhere else. And he doesn't quite know whether to believe her or not. It's about sort of a catastrophic, some deaths that happened in the house in the 50s. And um, he thinks she might be lying. He doesn't know. Um, and that is, um, I think at that point, he wasn't, um, you know, I think that I'm not even sure at that point, he might not have even been trying to research this poet. It was just maybe something about the house. I can't even remember, but it was basically going to end on that note of you'll never know. You'll just, you know, isn't it sad? Life's like that. Here we are in this house. You'll never know the history of this house. Um, which was deeply unsatisfying. Um, you know, that's what real life is like and real life is deeply unsatisfying that way. And, um, it just, you know, it, it just didn't feel right. And, um, but I was close to done. I really thought I was. And I was, you know, um, talking to an agent and, you know, sending him my synopsis. And this is going to happen. And I just, um, and then I was literally, I was brushing my teeth one morning and I was thinking about the book and I was thinking, my God, you know, maybe I really need to go back and show it. And it, the idea terrified me. But, and then I, the thought that, okay, if I go back to the fifties, then I also need to go back to the twenties when it was a colony. And then I need to go back to 1900 when the house was built and I'm carving out years more of work for myself. Um, but at the same time, I kind of realized, I looked back at The Borrower, which I hadn't finished revising and realized that I actually loved that book. And I sh- so it, it, all, it all came together. But um, yeah, it was just, it came about, you know, I, I, th- I had it. It just wasn't a satisfying book. It wasn't a good book. Um, I probably could have made... With a lot of changes, I could have made something work that stayed in the present day, of course, but this just was the right thing 
to do. And I think that's probably why it goes backwards rather than skipping all around in time is that I wrote 1999 first. So it's really organic, you know, to, to my process. We started here and then we dug back in the past and that's the way the book is too. So that's it. So thank you all so much. And I'll see a lot of you tomorrow too. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.